Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the whole Bible through the lens of living water, and we hope you'll join us. Hey everybody, welcome back to Jericho Road and a season that we're calling Living Water, where we're trying to look at stories through the lens of water so that we can meet new people or even find old stories in a new way. But before we get started with today's story, I'd like to tell you about a little game I like to play when I travel to the Holy Land or take groups to Israel. I call it a get. And a get is when you can look up a a verse or a story in Scripture and then see where it happened. That's a get. Or if you can walk where Jesus walked or touch something that Jesus touched. But I got to be honest, sometimes a get is kind of like pitching horseshoes. And I'll give you an example. In Nazareth today, there is a magnificent church of the Annunciation that towers over the tiny village of Nazareth. And it is a spectacular church in the bottom floor of the worship center. There is a first century building, and it is the traditional site of where the angel appeared to Mary uh, and and Mary said yes to the promise to have the baby and save the world. But there's really no way to know that that's the house. It's like pitching horseshoes. It is a first century house, which means that Mary likely saw the house. Nazareth was a tiny place. Uh, It is a first century house. That means that Jesus uh, could have easily walked beside the house or even in the house. Uh, It's Nazareth is such a tiny place. There's no way to know if that's really a get. But up the hill, there's a little church called the Church of St. Joseph. Another traditional site actually remembers Joseph and his carpenter tools, and it's a 19th century building where people uh, worship and take pictures and think about Jesus' stepdad. It's really lovely. But beneath that church is what I like to call the ultimate get. Beneath the church, there is a ritual bath or a mikvah that was shared by this tiny village of some 800 souls or less. Uh, It was a ritual bath that was used by everyone, which means that Mary would wash there, and Joseph would wash there, and Jesus would wash there, and his family would wash there. It's the ultimate place where Jesus would have been. You can see where Jesus washed. You can see where Jesus prayed in this way, mikvah. In the last few decades, some 700 of these mikvah, these ritual baths, have been found across Israel, and they're all over Jerusalem. Uh, it's, it's, uh, there's 170 of these in Jerusalem so far. And as best we can tell, this tradition of building a ritual bath for the, for either for your village or for your home began with the Hasmonean dynasty. And these were the, the Maccabees who revolted against the Greek dilution of their religion some 140 years before Jesus' birth. And they had a real preoccupation with ritual purity. They wanted to go back to Scripture and make sure that people did everything right by the book, which means by the Bible, regulated in thought, word, and deed by Holy Scripture. And so Leviticus 11 through 15, for instance, will tell you way more than you want to know about ritual purity, but you can get a snapshot of the importance of cleansing if you turn to Numbers 19, for the curious, if you want to write this down, Numbers 19, 14 to 19, I'll paraphrase. It simply means this. If you bury someone, you are contaminated and you need to wash. That, that's it. You need water for it. You need water to wash if you've, been, if you've buried someone or you've been uh, uh, around someone who's dead. And so you would need water in order to restore yourself to the community. Now, 
a persuasive case has been made uh, for this need for water uh, to say that this was all an attempt to discourage the cult of the dead that was common in Egypt and Mesopotamia, uh, places where they both both places where they had come from in their history, and so that corpses were considered sources of contamination so that they wouldn't worship them, right? So the Hebrews wouldn't have a, a cult of mummies or anything like that. But anyway, water was around them all the time to remind them that this would be a form of prayer that would restore them to God and to each other. And in the winter of 2020, which is during the COVID lockdown, an important mikvah find was actually run across by accident. It was near the Garden of Gethsemane. They were making an extension of a church called the Church of All Nations, and suddenly uh, they ran across uh, scores of these mikvah at the base of the garden, and it electrified the world for the simple reason is that it confirms that Gethsemane is exactly where the Bible said. On the side of the Mount of Olives, there are many olive groves, and there were competing ideas about the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember my idea of the get and playing horseshoes, but these mikvah were there because the word Gethsemane means oil press, and they were there to um, to purify the people making the oil for temple functions and temple worship so that these mikvah confirm that the, that the garden is exactly where we thought it would be. So, mikvah are very important, and mikvah are everywhere. On the southern steps of the Temple Mount, there were also mikvah as people would ascend the steps for worship. And this, these mikvah, I want us to think about for a second today. Jerusalem was a crazy place in the world of Jesus. It would swell from um, tens of thousands to a million or more at the time of the festival. And on any given day, tens and thousands of pilgrims would file up the southern steps to move into the temple precincts. And in short, I'll just tell you, you had to get wet to go in. Now, remember, they live in a water-stressed place where water is both rare and precious and reminds us of worship. So they would have a mikvah in Nazareth, but imagine a Nazarene now walking into the city. Uh, imagine a Nazarene, how's this, from a city of 800, now walking with tens of thousands of other pilgrims. You, you would never see that many people except in the festival and except at Jerusalem, uh, and all walking in and getting wet with precious water. And this bath, this quick bath as you entered the temple precincts would be regulated by priests. These priests lived in Jerusalem in high-end neighborhoods. They had an inherited position. They had inherited wealth. They had great importance. These priests who regulated these baths would be the same priests you see year after year. And I know people being creatures of habit, you'd probably go to the same side of the temple mount that you went every year, the same side of the steps. I know I sit in the same pew every time I walk into church. So you can imagine that these priests would be familiar and would become rock stars. Uh, they had um, they had great status, if you will. And there was a role and both a name and a role for these clergy, and they were called Baptists. Baptists. And one of them was named John, and John walked away. This event of John the Baptist walking away from these industrial mikvah and the importance of this job to go down to the Jordan River is an event so important that it is remembered by all four Gospels. And it is no surprise that John the Baptist would be a challenge and a threat to the established order. So I'm going to read John's version of the story because it has some details in it that will help us 
uh, uncover the purpose and the meaning behind John the Baptist. And it's John chapter 1, and it begins with the 19th verse. I'll read these and we'll see what we can find. This is the testimony given by John when Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny it, but confessed, I'm not the Messiah. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? Let us have an answer for you. Who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah had said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Why then are you baptizing if you are neither the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. Among you stands among whom you do not know. The one who is coming after me, I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. And this took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Well, right off the bat, you can see that he's caused quite a stir. And we'll say something about the delegations that came down to approach John. But right off the bat, he tells them that he's not the Messiah and he's adamant about it. Now, a quick tutorial about John's gospel here. There's a characteristic of John and it's only found in the fourth gospel to use the term Jews. Jews is used at least 70 times and it's always in opposition to Jesus. But I want you to remember that John's gospel is the youngest of the four and he's writing to Greek-speaking, Greek-thinking people. And the term Jews, technically speaking, is anachronistic. There were many Judaisms in the world of Jesus. There were Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes and Zealots and not necessarily in opposition to Jesus. But this word Jews has been used problematically in the future, and I don't believe that it was John's intent. It was John's intent to simply use a term to show that there are some people who could not see that Jesus is the Son of God. Unfortunately, the early 4th century, uh, Constantine became the emperor, the sole emperor of the Roman Empire, and found pockets of Christianity in each urban center of the empire across all the way from Spain, all the way across to North Africa, and realized that Christianity could become the glue to hold his empire together. We can see this in the backs of our Bibles today, as Paul would write letters uh, to places that you can find on a map, even today, Philippi, Corinth, Thessaloniki, and the like. So Constantine would make Christianity the glue to hold his empire together, and then he would begin to change the symbols. I believe it all happened with a battle that secured his throne. In the year 312, Constantine would fight a battle called the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, and legend has it that as he was preparing to fight the last claimant for his own authority, God would reveal to him that if he painted a symbol on the shields of his soldiers, that he would win the battle. That symbol was a cross. By this cross, you will conquer, and he did. It would take many years, right up to the end of Constantine's own life, in order to actually convert to Christianity, but he knew that he could use it. And in the next year, 313, he he presented or passed the Edict of Milan, which would begin the toleration of Christianity and the eventual adoption of Christianity as the religion representing the emperor. And here's where we go with the unfortunate term Jews in John's gospel. Constantine simply changed the symbols. If you've ever traveled to the catacombs in Rome, you'll know that the Christian symbols were different something like a fish or, or a table or bread or a shepherd. But with Constantine's religion, the symbol became the cross. Early Christians didn't talk about the cross that much, only because 
it was so awful to contemplate. Roman crucifixion was everywhere. It was so ubiquitous and horrible. It was a terror weapon that you didn't like to talk about it. You didn't even like to think about that happening to our Lord. But now the cross was up front and personal, and the cross begs a question. Who did this? And unfortunately, there's not any kind of fight like a family fight. And Christians and Jews had been after each other because, well, frankly, in the Roman Empire, they wanted to know what these Christians were. And they said, we're simply Jewish people uh, that have extended the, the extended the movement to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. The Jewish people said, no, we're the ones who, are, who have great antiquity and we're the ones to be protected. They're not us. You know, they're outside the they're outside your protection, outside the law. And as I've said, once again, no fight like a family fight. The cross begs the question, who did this? The Romans pointed to Jewish people and said, they did. And I believe that this misuse of John's gospel and other things, as well as misuse of the symbol, contributed to the beginnings of or the origins, if you will, of Western anti-Semitism, even to this day. Now, friends, I love my cross. I love our St. Luke's cross. I love to wear a cross when I lead worship. But let us remember uh, that even the, the best symbols or the best of us uh, can be misused. And anti-Semitism was never John's point. Rather, this gospel is about two things. God so loved the world that it became one of his own creation. And two, people just can't see. So the deputation sent to question John is made up of two kinds of people, priests and Levites of the first kind. And now remember, John was part of that inherited club. So they had to go down there and ask why. Why did you walk away from a place that had your own villa, that had your own private bath? Why did you walk away from a place of great wealth? Maybe even, why are you making us look bad? Okay, that's the first group of people, the priests and Levites. The second group are the Pharisees. They're just down here to see if it's even legit. So the first question is a good one. Are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? Let's talk about prophets for a second in the Bible. Um, I like to say that prophets came on board or prophets were initiated by God when God's people asked for a king. And you've got several ways to look at prophets in the Bible. You've got stories about prophets like Elijah, which I'll read in just a second. And then you've got stories by prophets like Amos, which would be the oldest of the anthologies, some 800 years before Jesus' birth. And then you've got stories that are a mix of, of their words or anthologies and history, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, this sort of thing. So this is the role of prophets. And Elijah is one of my favorites. I'm convinced that God put Elijah on this earth to make King Ahab's life just living misery. King Ahab, the king of Israel, and Elijah was calling him out again and again and again. And the story that I want to read to you is when King Ahab finally dies and his son Ahaziah begins to reign over Israel. This is 2 Kings chapter 1, and this will give you a snapshot in the life of Elijah the prophet or Elijah the Tishbite. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. And Ahaziah had fallen through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay injured. So he sent messengers telling them, go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this injury. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, get up and go meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not leave the bed from which you've gone, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. 
Well, the messengers returned to the king, who said to them, Why have you returned? They answered, There came a man to meet us, who said to us, Go back to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not leave the bed from which you have gone, but you shall surely die. And he said to them, What sort of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? And they answered him, Hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. He said, Ah, it is Elijah, the Tishbite. Well, John the Baptist dressed like Elijah. He looked like Elijah. And he's provocative like Elijah. So they had to ask, Are you Elijah? Come back at last. And hey, let's remember the last promise of Malachi. Malachi is the last prophet we have listed and remembered in our own New Old Testaments, rather, what we call the Old Testament of the Hebrew Scriptures. And Malachi makes this promise here in Malachi 4, verse 5. These are the last two verses in the Old Testament. Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and their hearts of children to the parents so that I will not come and strike the land with a curse. You could take the Red Pew Bible in our church and see this, but I'm sure everyone's Bible will do this. After those last two verses, there's always a blank page between the Hebrew Scriptures of the Old Testament and the, the beginning of the Gospels. Uh, that blank page represents 400 years of silence, 400 years that God's people only had words on a page, 400 years of conqueror after conqueror after conqueror, 400 years finally of the Romans and their deadening taxes, 400 years of mad King Herod and turning the temple into the wonder of the ancient world, 400 years where all you've got are words on a page and you're wondering if this is all true. If after 400 years, a man walks away from inherited position, walks away from the city of Jerusalem, walks away from his mikvah job down to the River Jordan, and it must have been electric. Are you Elijah? The second question was just as provocative. Are you the prophet? Well, when they say, are you the prophet, they mean Moses. Are you Moses? Come back to do something unprecedented for us. So John the Baptist answers in effect, look, I'm not the prophet, but I am a prophet. And he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, which is Isaiah 40, verse 3. These are going home words from the prophet Isaiah. I need to say something about Isaiah the prophet when it comes to the Hebrew scriptures. We really think they're three. If you look at the words of the prophet, you can see that the context changes. And also with the history embedded within it, it's just too long for one person. And it was common for people to ascribe, if you will, the words of the original prophet. They would simply take on the words and would become the Isaiah school. So that verses 1 through 39, we believe, are warnings of judgment to come. God's people have not been doing right. They have removed themselves from a cover of protection. And in 586 B.C., the Babylonian army would surround them, destroy their temple, and take them away, just as Isaiah warned. Verses 40 through 54 are the words during the exile. They're comfort words, and they're going home words. And then chapters 55 through 66 or that rebuilding time after they go home. So remember that the quote here is Isaiah 40, verse 3, which is going home words. I'm the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, which means that something is going to happen for them. They are going to win. God's judgment is past. 
400 years of silence is now over. God is talking again and living color, and they now can go home. What does this mean? Well, here's my take on John the Baptist and this electric scene from down by the Jordan River. I believe John went way out there where the air was clean for at least two reasons. I believe that John went way down there by the Jordan River where the water was clean for at least two reasons. I believe that John left his industrial job, his industrial religious job, out under the stars for at least two reasons. One, they can think out there. They can think out there. I've got my own story, and it has to do with baptisms. During the COVID lockdown, especially the hard lockdown, in those days when we would have only limited numbers of people in the building, and we all remember those days where we were all wearing masks and we were distancing, we had blue tape everywhere. We have a large nave and a large congregation, but we could only allow, I don't know, something under 50 at a time in the building. And so we started having baptisms because the babies kept coming. We had a backlog of those. We started having baptisms with their families alone pretty much on Sunday afternoons and anytime we could schedule them. And we found out that we loved it. We loved having baptisms with the family, uh, not because we wanted to keep the babies away from anyone and not because we didn't want to have the babies on Sunday morning. In those days, we couldn't do it anyway. But because Sunday afternoon baptisms with the family meant that they could, we could talk to their children or we could talk to their cousins or the baby could cry. We could start when it was necessary. We could have the godparents around for godparenting instruction. I could teach the little ones what baptism means. I let the little cousins stand around and touch the water. All these things that weren't available to us when we would have baptisms on a Sunday morning in the context of of Sunday worship. St. Luke's is a big church. We were baptizing five children at a time, which means five families all lined up at front, which means crying babies in a full church. And yes, it was exciting to have a big full church for people, but I'll be honest, I think it was the idea of it was better than than the reality of it. I think people were were, were weary of, of, of baptisms, watching families they don't know. I had one friend who was a golfer who said, hey, just put a bow in front of the church and I'll know you're having baptisms. The moms will think you're honoring the baby and I could just go to the golf course. So now we've got baptisms in the nave of the church in the quiet where we can think and we can talk about it. And change is hard, but surprises abound. That's what I'm trying to say. Sometimes we've got to go to the quiet in order to think. And here's the second reason. I believe that John needed to go to the Jordan River to point away from all the institution on the top of the hill in Jerusalem and to Jesus. That temple was the wonder of the ancient world, and it was something to see. But out there in the clean air where they could think, now they could look at the Messiah. There was a rabbinic saying that went like this, every service a slave performs for his master, a disciple will perform for a teacher except to untie his sandal strap. John was saying, out here in the desert by the river, I'm not even worthy to be this Messiah's slave. So it's a pretty cool story. It sets us up after 400 years of silence for God to speak again in living color again, talking to his people again and speaking to us today. And it leads us to a question. Where do you most find the presence of Jesus in your life. Thanks, everybody. We'll keep it going.